Well, hello everyone, we are back with the Continuous Talk podcast, episode number 9. Today we are going to be talking about SDK Man and a bit about open source software. Now, uh, my co-host for today is going to be Simeon. Say hello, Simeon, and present yourself. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Simeon. I'm an apprentice right now at Codurance. And, uh, well, the, the guest uh, for us for today, the one that is going to be doing most of the talking, is uh, Marco. So, Marco, can you present yourself? Hi, thanks, Jorge. Uh, my name is Marco from Erlen. Um, I'm a software developer, also working with Codurance at the moment. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm mostly a Java and JVM developer. And um, I am the creator of SDK Man as well. So, hi. <laughs> okay, so that's the first thing that we're going to be talking about, SDK Man, what it is. Can you explain to the to our listeners what SDK Man is? Right, so... SDK Man is effectively a software development kit manager. So it's a tool that allows you to install SDKs onto your local development machine, um, allowing you just to, um, to install whatever you need to get the job done and to do it in the most easy and friendly way possible. So is this a tool for, uh, for developers only or is a... Uh, uh good for the general public? Uh, it's primarily for software developers um, because software development kits are basically used um, for you to do your daily software development tasks. So it allows you to install those very easily. Okay. And can you give us a, a few examples of uh, kits that you can install through SDK Man? Absolutely. Um, so I, I think the, the most popular one at the moment that can be installed is Java itself. Uh, also take note that all these software development kits are focused on the Java ecosystem. So they're all JVM related, um, which means Java, uh, we've got Kotlin, we've got Scala, we've got Groovy, uh, we've got um, a whole bunch of build tools like Gradle, we've even got Maven. Um, and then, um, of course, um, there are other toolkits like Grails, um, so different frameworks. Anything that basically comes bundled as an SDK um, that can be used in the Java ecosystem uh, is pretty much there. So is, is it focused by default to Java ecosystem or is it just because that was your main, um, uh, as you said, you're a mostly yeah, a JVM developer is because that that there are so many kits just for the Java world or could be extended to other software kits? So that's actually a very good question. So how SDK Man actually came about was um, it was basically to scratch my own itch. Um, so effectively, I was doing Java development on a daily basis. And at the time, I was very involved with the Groovy community. And um, I found myself having to go to a download page daily, some download page to go and download an SDK of a new version that got released. And then I had to go and save that. And I had to go and extract the archive and I had to go and put it somewhere and then add it to my path. And it, it just got so mundane and so boring 
that I decided, well, surely everybody must be having this problem. Everybody must be battling with this. So I decided to actually do something about it and write a small command line tool that could do all of this work for you. So that's how SDK Man was born. Okay. Um, so, okay, a, a, a bit uh, because it's one of the things that we want to talk about uh, uh, on today's podcast, is uh, what development model are you following? What license do you have for SDK Man? Right, so um, it's currently licensed under the Apache version, version 2 license. Uh, it means that uh, everybody is free to download the source and modify it and reuse it for their own purposes. It's completely open source, um, which, which is something I fundamentally really believe in. I, I don't believe in proprietary software, and um, it's also completely free for the public to use. Uh, I don't charge anything for them to use the software. Uh, it's, my, it's just my way of giving back to all the other incredible software developers out there that are contributing their software and letting me use it every single day. So in this way, I can just give something back. That's, uh, that's quite nice. Why Apache 2? Why uh, maybe, uh, I mean, you will have GNU, you have, uh, sorry, GNU, <laughs> GPL. <laughs> you have UPL, you have uh, MIT, Berkeley, you have so many others. Why Apache 2? So I, I'm actually not a, a big expert in all the legal stuff. Um, I just... I just know that Apache 2 is a very nice middle-of-the-road uh, license, and I, I know a lot of the SDKs um, that I am distributing also have um, that same license. Um, yeah, so I think that's why I went for it. I don't actually have a very strong view on the different licenses, to be honest. It is. Uh, was this one your first uh, uh, open-source release, or have you done... Any other, uh, any other previous work that was open source? So I, I'm being quite involved in the Groovy community early on, um, which is a very much an open source community. Um, I was quite involved with different libraries. Um, so there were, there were all kinds of libraries that I contributed to. At one point, um, I, was, I had a small library, uh, which was for Gaelic, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Gaelic, but Gaelic was um, a, a little groovy framework for um, the uh, Google App Engine. Mm. So um, I, I wrote like a, a testing library for that, which integrated Spock um, into Gaelic. So that was probably my very my that was probably my very first um, attempt at doing something open source. And then I started contributing to a lot of other projects as well. I started raising pull requests and um, just becoming more and more active. So, yeah. Okay. You, you did mention before that uh, it's a way to give back the, to the community. That's, uh, that was one of your reasons to make uh, SDK Man open source. So any... Any specific reason uh, apart from the from what we have mentioned of uh, giving back the community? Uh, you have said that you are very uh, you have very strong uh, feelings about using open source. Is there any more? Uh, what other reasons are there for people for you to create open source for people to use open source? 
Yeah, so, um, so I think the reason why I feel strong about it is just over the years, we've seen um, a lot of people releasing proprietary software, um, software that nobody can actually look uh, look at, uh, actually look at the source. Uh, so for me, that's always really scary because it always makes me think, what kind of secrets are they hiding? Um, you know, what are they keeping from the public? You know, that that is so top secret. Do they have some amazing algorithm? Probably not. You know, so why are they hiding things? So I, I like doing things in the open. I love transparency. I I like that as a person as well. I expect people to be transparent with me and I like being transparent with them. I don't hi- like hiding things. And I think that gets extended in software as well. So. So that's, I think, why I feel quite quite strong about open source software. I must say I do agree with the part of uh, uh, of knowing what the software is doing. I mean, we have so many episodes of uh, of discovering that uh, companies are doing things that they were not supposed to be doing with their uh, with the software. You have the Sony rootkits, for example. We have uh, well. Uh, Facebook and all the shenanigans that they have been doing for the last few years. Uh, it is, I, I do like you believe the case that is open source is the, the best way forward in general for for everyone. Okay, so how, how long have you been developing SDK Man? So SDK Man, if my memory serves me right, has been going for about six years now. So um, six years. six years, yes, yeah. Okay, so that's that's pretty much quite, quite a long time. Um, how have you find the fact that is well that you have that that product out there that people can uh, come back to you with uh, with issues with requests? How how is that working out for you? So for me, that's that's the best part of this all. Um, the whole process is very much a community-driven process. Um, so right in the beginning, oh, just incidentally, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm quite a big fan of BDD, of behavior-driven development. So okay. I started this project as an experiment in BDD. So before I wrote any any code whatsoever, I went and I wrote a bunch of Cucumber features which describe the software. And I published this, uh, I pu- I published this on GitHub and um, I, I publicized the links to these feature files. And people started commenting on this stuff and started giving feedback of how they wanted the software to work. So by describing it in plain English, we were actually coming to agreement of how the software should work and getting a picture, an idea of exactly what it would do. And then once we had those specifications in place, then we actually started automating those and started driving the software out step by step. So um, from the very beginning, I've always encouraged people to be involved. And lucky for me, people have still carried on just raising pull requests and being involved and asking for new features, you know, so it's been, it's been wonderful that, you know, people have been, you know, really getting in there and being active in the community. That's, that's nice. 
What, what is uh, how many contributors do you have at the moment? So it's it's on and off, right? So for me, um, I guess I have a steady stream of small contributions. So it'll be little bug fixes, or um, I've got a, a database migration project as well, um, which allows people from the community to add new versions of software. Um, so I, I get a steady stream of of PRs, but they're never just from one or two people. I don't really have a big team, um, but the community seems to always be contributing little bits as we go along. So I'm, I'm curious about one thing, as you said, you began with, um, with the specification with Cucumber like uh, scenarios. Uh, and I, I know a good deal of it is written in Bash. How did you, did, did you have to write like your own um, tool for transforming the scenarios into, in, into the code? Because in, in, in Java or in Ruby, those scenarios generate code automatically for, for me. Okay, so yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Um, so I'm using Cucumber JVM in that project. Um, you'll, you'll see the project actually has a Gradle build and it runs Cucumber. Um, under the hood, that the, the Cucumber step definitions use an adaptive layer, uh, which is a it's it's a it's a bash environment that gets spun up um, within. The Groovy, because the, the step definitions are all written in Groovy, that adaptive layer um, actually spins up a tiny little bash environment and runs a whole bunch of commands um, that it picks up from the feature files inside that bash environment. And then it looks at, number one, the file system to do assertions. And number two, it looks at the console output to see that certain things have been printed on the console output. In other words, um, everything, all that behavior can be described and tested directly within a tiny little bash shell. Um, and then for all the HTTP interactions, we're using Wiremock in the back end. So SDK man uses curl um, under the hood to make its calls. So curl will actually be calling out to Wiremock and getting back canned responses, um, which we then use. Okay, that's quite a setup. <laughs> <laughs> how difficult is for people to I, I you, 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 we'll talk a, a bit uh, later about uh, the exact stack that you are using but how difficult is for people to contribute to uh, to SDKML yeah so um, I, I think the biggest hurdle always um because the, the client side is written in Bash at the moment, um, the biggest hurdle always is for people to write Bash. Um, so it, writing idiomatic Bash is actually a very difficult thing. Everybody can hack away and just write a few Bash scripts, but we've actually gone to the point where we've written Bash in a functional way, where we actually where we, we, we rely on functions completely. Uh, even the top-level SDK command that you use is actually a function that gets loaded into the shell. So um, for people to get their head around that is normally quite difficult. So we've, we, we expect all contributions to follow that specific style as well. 
Is there any specific pain point that you have had uh, as a maintainer of uh, of SDKML? Um, so typically, it's actually been a really good experience. Um, I've actually had just overwhelmingly good feedback from people. Uh, people are always very, very happy with software. I get very few people that actually complain about it. Uh, we do have the occasional troll appearing. Um, I mean, that I think that happens in every project. You know, you get difficult people who are just difficult for the sake of being difficult, and um, they just try and be nasty and hurtful. But, you know, for the most part, I'd say... 98% of the people um, that we get feedback from are always very um, thankful and very happy about everything. Uh, so um, pain points, I, I, I don't have a lot. Um, my biggest pain point, I guess, is I wish I had more time to work on it. <laughs> That's probably why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Is there anything different? Oh, sorry, is there anything that you would do different? You could start again, SDKMAM, in terms of how you are handling the uh, the well, the contributions and the issues, or 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 rather, have you learned anything about how to how to be the 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 main person behind the an open source project? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think if, if I have to go back and start again, I would probably do things a bit differently. Um, but at the same time, the way that it's all happened, it's all part of a natural learning curve that you have to go through. So um, I don't regret any of the decisions we made um, up early. But if I had to go back and start over now, then yes, maybe I, I would... Um, try and involve the community in a slightly different way. I'd probably establish um, processes a bit earlier on, uh, ways of working, ways of contributing, uh, because in the beginning it was always a very free-for-all thing and people could just raise issues on the GitHub and we would, we would be drowned by issues being open and people asking for new features and so later on, I opened a Gitter account and I set up a bunch of contributor guidelines. Uh, I, I learned that process from when I was working at Gradle for a while. Um, they, mm -hmm. they, they basically had a very, very good process, a very tight process. So I learned from that and I started applying that to my own project as well. And it worked out very good. Um, it just filters out a lot of the noise that you get um, from people just opening random issues the whole time and just asking questions. Um, having some kind of live forum where people can ask questions, like a, a chat, is actually a very, very good thing because it just kind of it prevents you from spending weekends weeding through GitHub issues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so so you're using a, a bit of GitHub issues. You're using. Gitter, anything else, any other uh, system application that you're using to to control the project? Uh, no, so it's it's just literally those two. Um, Gitter, Gitter channel for for user issues. If people have random questions, um, the Gitter channel links through to a, a FAQ, which is a work in progress. Um, 
I, I started realizing right lately that we have a lot of people asking the same questions over and over. So I decided to put up a fact and so um, people can refer to that first. And then if they still have questions, then they can ask on the Gitter channel. And then myself and a few other people actually answer questions regularly. So, and then if there is really an issue, a, a real bug, or if, um, there's a new feature that actually makes sense that we feel we should be implementing. Then we ask the people to open an issue on GitHub and then that gets picked up uh, for development. Uh, okay, so let's not talk a bit about uh, the tech stack of, uh, of SDK Man because you have mentioned before that you have uh, your using bus and you have mentioned that you have a JBM on it, yeah? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the current stack, yes, is um, it's a command line client written in Bash. Um, it's undergirded by curl and the zip command. So to get it running locally on your machine, you need very, very little installed. If you have Bash, curl, zip, and a few other small little tools, um, then you're good to go. But all the heavy lifting is actually done in the back end. Now, the back end actually consists of a whole bunch of containerized microservices. So, um, and these microservices have been written in a variety of different technologies. Um, I see it maybe slightly as a bit of a, a playground as well, where I get to play with nice new tech. Um, and because they're all microservices, um, they're all independent from each other and they all speak over HTTP. So, they're completely isolated. So, okay. um, Some of the services, most of the services are written in Scala. Um, I've used several frameworks um, where I thought would be most appropriate. For instance, a lot of the bash that actually gets executed locally on your machine are rendered templates that come from a Scala play application. So um, you do a request passing some parameters and it serves back to you, not an HTML page, but a bash script that gets executed in line and does some work locally. Uh, so that gives it a very dynamic kind of feel, right? It's um, So I thought play would be a really good fit for that. And it works really well in that context. Um, For places where we've got um, more pure API kind of stuff, uh, we use um, Akka HTTP, which is a very lightweight async framework, um, also for Scala. And then um, we have one application written in Ratpack with Java, Java 8. Uh, so th there's, there's quite a mix in there of different technologies. And then, of course, that all speaks to a MongoDB instance, which sits in the back end where all the data is held. So that's that's roughly the, the, the stack. Okay, so 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 most of the work that is being done is being done in the cloud. Yeah. So Absolutely. it's just yes, yes, the bus client is the only thing that is running on your machine, and the the rest of the of the system is all up in the cloud. That's correct, yes. Um, it, it's all running on DigitalOcean, and um, everything is running in Docker, and um, we provision everything using Terraform and Ansible. So everything is reproducible, and um, 
if something catastrophic happened, we'd be able to get everything up and running again within 10 minutes. So. Oh, that's nice. How are you finding Terraform on uh, DigitalOcean? Terraform is great. Um, it's a it's a really fantastic tool. Um, it's it's written in Go, um, so it's one of the HashiCorp tools, uh, and it's I think it's a very very good piece of software. It's got a few little um, funny behaviors and weird things, but generally I think it's a it's a very very good tool. Um, the thing that probably that I don't like so much about it is the fact that it builds the state model. Um, and sometimes that state model can go corrupt, which um, then results in everything being reprovisioned. Uh, I've known of some, some people that have had to reprovision their entire stack and have had outages as a result. So, for me, that is the part about Terraform that I don't like so much. Hmm. Well, I suppose uh, anyway, for, for most cases, so uh, let's see how I can express this. Uh, so it's still okay for most cases and for, I don't know, 90, 99% of the time is fine. And then that 1% that is more difficult than otherwise it will be. Uh, or just, or, or or even if with that uh, that issue that you have mentioned, it's still something that you will continue using uh, Terraform. Absolutely, I, I I think what what makes it shine the most is that um, Terraform has adapters for all kinds of services. So when I'm provisioning something on DigitalOcean, um, I I also have an account with a company that does my DNS, for instance, and automatically as part of my Terraform build, it will go and update my DNS entries um, and speak to several other service providers um, that I integrate with all at the same time. So when I provision something, all those things are done in one go. And if anything changes in my Terraform scripts for one of those providers, then when I run Terraform, it'll go and update everything that it needs to in order for the whole system to hang together again. So I think it's an absolutely invaluable tool. Um, I, I I do have that odd glitch, you know, where, where things do go wrong. And when it does happen, I get a bit frustrated. But all in all, the benefit far outweighs the downsides. So going back to, the, to what you said earlier, uh, so it's also up as, uh, as a set of microservices. Why did you go with that architecture? So I think um, over the years, um, I, I've, I, I started off working in, in big monolithic applications. Um, I've been doing Java, going all the way back to Java 1.3, 1.4. Um, so many years of just working in big, big clunky apps, and um, when, when James Lewis started speaking about uh, microservice architecture a good few years ago now, um, I, I was lucky enough to land on a big project um, where they were actually spearheading microservices. That was the, um, the HMRC um, uh, uh, portal or gateway that, that, that they're building. Um, it's still a project that's on the go at the moment. Um, and here they were actually using... Uh, microservices 
to to build the whole HMRC platform, digital platform. Um, and they were using, back then they were using Scala and they were using Play Framework. So I think that's where I got my real first taste of how it can be done. And fortunately, they had a great architect um, who, who really, you know, um, he, he was really forward thinking, you know, and um, yeah, it was a great project to work on. And since that day, since having seen that in action and having seen how it can be done, I've fully embraced that form of architecture and I've started using it in my own projects and um, it, wor it works wonders for me. I, I really believe it's the way to go. Nice. Um, is there any um, any any misgiving, any place where you would induce that architecture? I, I suppose you always need to um, to look at things, you know, in a realistic perspective. Uh, but for me, generally, um, uh, when I'm designing a system, I always think in terms of the domain that I'm designing for, and giving taking a look at, 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 at a given domain and its subdomains, I normally start thinking in terms of subdomains as individual services because it just helps in, enforce the boundaries of that domain. It, it just enforces isolation. Um, so I, I, just, I just generally always tend to go down that route. And, and being assisted by great tools like Terraform and Ansible um, that actually makes it so easy to provision new services. For me, it's almost a no-brainer. Uh, for, for me, it's a cheap exercise to spin up a new service. I, I think where um, you might shy away from going for an, for an architecture like microservices is if you don't have the right infrastructure in place to start up a new service. If it's, if it's a very cumbersome and slow thing to spin up a new service, then maybe you should think twice about doing it. But then at the same time, you're going to be faced with the expense of maintaining a big, clunky, slow monolith, which is normally slow to develop and um, normally has a, a big barrier of entry because you've got, a, you've got a, a lot of learning to do when you have to start working in a big monolith. You've got to analyze and understand the whole big picture. Whereas a microservice is a tiny chunk that is very easy to digest. You look at the code, you read it, and within half an hour, you're ready to start developing something. So it just speeds you up. How do you deal with, um, uh, with outages within the microservices? How do you deal with the fact that sometimes, I don't know if it actually happens to you, but sometimes they can start communicating with each other. Uh, any specific um, strategy that you are following to to deal with that? So because um, the microservices that I'm running don't actually run under extreme load, um, I, I'm actually running very simple infrastructure. I have one instance per microservice up and running at the moment. Um, so like I said before, I'm using Ansible to provision and provision everything. So if something terrible happens and an instance gets destroyed, then I can easily recreate it. Um, I also have monitoring. I, I use Uptime Robot. Um, so it makes me aware instantaneously if one of my services goes down, um, which luckily hardly ever happens. 
and if it does happen, then all I do is I run Ansible and it'll reprovision the instance that is down, you know, so uh, it, it'll be up in seconds. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think where I have had outages in the past is where there have been problems with the platform I was deploying on. So in the past, I was on Heroku. And mm -hmm. back in the day, I had quite a few issues where things just didn't go well. Um, and then I, I would try and redeploy my jar file only to find that something had changed in the platform and then I couldn't get my service back up. So at that point, I decided to go back more to infrastructure as a service. Um, and I, I first considered going AWS, but then... I heard such good things about DigitalOcean that I decided to uh, give DigitalOcean a spin. And it's been an absolute pleasure, and it's been rock solid for me. Oh, that's nice. Uh, but, well, DigitalOcean, I suppose, doesn't have uh, at the moment as many uh, options as uh, AWS. That's correct, yeah. So um, I, I think they're catching up very quickly. They... They now have IAM policies, I believe. Um, they now have um, spaces, which is something like S3. Um, they're even busy trialing Kubernetes clusters, um, which I think is, is probably the way to go. Um, I'm definitely going to be cutting over my stuff to Kubernetes at some point when I get the opportunity. Um, at the moment, I don't really require that kind of scale yet where... I need my services to auto-scale. Everything is pretty stable. But in future, I will definitely start looking at um, at, at a managed uh, kind of solution like uh, using Kubernetes for deploying my Docker containers. That, that, that is the... Well, you have started to look at possible things that you want to change in the future. Is there anything that you're working on right now uh, on SDK man, or uh, do you have any specific plans to change anything about how it works? <laughs> I know why you're asking that question. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've spoken about this before. Um, so I'm I'm currently um, working on integrating GoLang in SDK man. So SDK man has a lot of complex stuff going on on the client side. Um, there's a lot of string parsing and calls to HTTP services and then picking those responses apart and doing stuff with it and doing stuff in the file system. And it's actually quite brittle because bash is just bash, right? And um, yeah. at the end of the day, for me, the biggest problem with bash is the fact that you're building something on quicksand. You're building on a foundation that is not very strong. Every mm -hmm. single machine will have a different version of Bash installed. Some people will have ZSH. Other people will have Fish Shell. Um, there are so many different target platforms. And Bash seems to behave differently in every single one. Uh, then there's the other thing that... Um, also, it, it, there's a great dependency on that you have to have an interactive shell, not a login shell, because a login shell holds onto the state that it was initialized in when you first yeah. open that login shell. So 
there's all these weird side effects going on in a bash environment um, that I've just decided I would rather start doing a rewrite of the crucial parts of that in Go. So we can never get completely away from bash because um, in order to have environment variables available, for instance, which is something really crucial to SDK man, um, and setting up your path, for instance, in your bash shell, you'll still need a bash wrapper for that. But the actual work will be done by Go helpers that will be invoked. So generating of path strings, doing HTTP calls, getting back JSON, and turning that into something usable. All of that stuff is available in the Go standard libraries. One question that just came to mind as you were uh, talking about uh, Go right now, um, it didn't cross my mind before because, well, I'm most of the time I'm a Linux user. Uh, I, I use uh, Windows at home just for playing and at work if I need to do something on .NET. But other than that, I'm all the time on, on Linux. Uh, and right now, it's, as you say, it's all bus scripts on the client. So it's Linux and uh, a Mac. Now that if you change the client to Go, are you thinking about supporting Windows? So Windows is actually already supported, right? Um, so if you're using Git Bash or you're using Sigwin, then SDK okay. Man is 100% compatible. Um, we we um, just download a zip file to your machine, and we just actually add it to your path, and it's available to use in Sigwin. Um, for some candidates, like Java, it actually downloads an .exe file and, and installs that on your machine. Um, okay. And Sigwin actually just works with .exe files under the hood, right? So, um, yeah, it, it'll just work magically on any Windows box if you have one of those, uh, either Sigwin or Git Bash installed. Okay, do you realize that? Uh, and uh, will you look at uh, the possibility of going native uh, if uh, you use Go, or do you still uh, think that it should be done through the root of uh, Sidewind or Kibas? Uh Sorry, I don't understand that question. Yeah. Do you think... Uh, um, <clears throat> Do you think you will go native uh, with Go on Windows, or you will still advocate for the root of using Gitbus uh, uh, or Sidewing to use it, even if you move the client to Go? So that's a good question. Um, so th the whole idea is to have these Go helpers that will do the working and the interaction with the REST client. Uh, on the on those different platforms, whether it's Windows, Linux, Mac, Solaris, FreeBSD, um, that will that will be handled by the helpers. But then there'll be a a glue layer or a wrapping layer, which will be either in Bash or Fish Shell for Fish Shell users or PowerShell for Windows users. So. Um, what I'm hoping to see emerging is that people from the community will be able to step out and start providing these wrappers um, where they're required. I know the fish 
community, for instance, is really um, that they they love SDK Man, and they've actually already got a project where they've actually written some kind of adaptive layer that makes SDK Man run inside of it. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll be seeing more of that, um, and then yeah, we'll be providing um, Go binaries for all platforms uh, because that's to me that's the beauty of Go, right? You can you can compile to any target platform that you need. Mm, you, you mentioned that you cannot really get rid of uh, Bash. Um, what? what, what? <laughs> Sorry, my dogs are a bit nervous. My wife isn't here at the moment. <laughs> she... What? Uh... What is the main part that's going to be rewritten in Go and what will stay in uh, Bash? Will, you, you mentioned that the, some of the services in Scala send back uh, a Bash script that's executed by, by the local client. Is that something that's going to keep going or is it something that is going to be rewritten? Right. So I think all the, the static parts... Um, that live locally on your machine as bash functions. That stuff is all going to be replaced by Go helpers, right? Um, The Go helpers will still be invoked by a light layer of bash, like I said earlier. But then um, when you have special hooks that get called back, um, and we see this especially for the Java um, SDKs that get installed, some of those SDKs um, require quite a bit of massaging for them to be able to be transformed into something that can be used locally. Um, And in those cases, we serve back pre- and post-installation hooks. Now, for me, those are most sensibly done as bash. That's the easiest and the most reliable way of making those changes um, because they change from time to time. No, um, for instance, Oracle will suddenly change something in the way that binaries are packaged, or you know something like that. Um, then having a hook that's dynamic actually helps you a lot. Uh, it, it's a really useful tool, um, and if something breaks, you can respond really fastly by just making a change in the service, redeploying, and immediately everybody's Um, installations just start working again. They don't have to go and reinstall anything new locally on their machine. You just fix it in one place and everybody benefits immediately. So it helps us to respond really fast. So I don't think that is going to change. I think we are going to keep the pre and post installation hooks as bash for sure. I think that makes the most sense. So yes, it's it's mostly for um, changes to the local file system uh, where be working with the .stkman folder that lies in your home directory, um, installing new candidates, for instance, pulling those down via HTTP, um, repackaging them locally, all that stuff will be handled by Go instead of Bash. Anything left that, that we haven't discussed about that you will want to talk about? Ah... Let me think. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I guess um, one thing I, I'd like to to mention is we're always looking for contributors, right? We're looking for people who'd love to get involved and like to make a difference. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a really rewarding thing being involved in open source and being involved in a, a project like this because so many people gain benefit out of the work that you do, um, which is a really gratifying thing for me. So um, we, we, we'd love to get more people on board. Remember, it's not just Bash that we're talking about, but there's the exciting prospect now of the whole Go rewrite, um, which lately has stalled a bit, but we're going to be picking that up again very soon. Um, so it's the Go rewrite, and then there's all the stuff going on in the back end, right? There's so much um, great Scala code there. There's a bit of Java, and I think there might even be a little pocket of Groovy left somewhere. But it's um, it's all really interesting stuff that you can get involved in, and um, it's all up there on GitHub. You, know, you can just clone it and raise a pull request, you know, and there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have heard people. Uh, I will put the the link on the on the blog post. But let's help with this DK man. <laughs> that would be great. That would be really great. Thank you. I believe Simeon, you were quite interested, weren't you, in uh, in maybe getting involved? Yeah, I uh, I made my first pull request on SDK man on the database migrations. I wanted to add. Lining on 2.8.3, the latest version. But it seems it's the closure community has their own way of packaging stuff and it wasn't compatible with how SDK Man worked. But I learned quite a bit about the whole SDK Man stack doing that. So it's it was satisfying to learn about the project. Great stuff, yeah. yeah. And um, I'd love to bear with you sometime if you like, man. We can We can get together and we can... We can mess around with some code, and I can show you some uh, some cool stuff, some nice issues that you can maybe want to work on. But uh, there's always um, lots to be done. <laughs> <laughs> and now, during the podcast, you answered one of my questions because I was looking at the bash and I didn't see where some of the functions were coming from, and now I know they are actually coming from the from a service. That's correct. Yeah, I think are we happy? Are we happy? Yeah, I, I'm happy. That was uh, that was good. Thank you very much for having me. It was uh, <laughs> it was a good, uh, good podcast. All right. Uh, thank you, Simeon, for being with us. Thank you, Marco, for all the talk that you have had to do. <laughs> and uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you to all our listeners. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.